Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I have a joke that um, I can't take credit for, and I don't actually want to take credit for it. So we were on tour, and uh, we've been having this argument in the van about how to pronounce the name of the town. We go back and forth, is it Versailles or is it Versailles? We pulled off to get some coffee and said to the woman behind the counter, tell me very clearly and slowly so there's no mistaking about it, where am I? And she says, Dunkin' Donuts. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from the Frank Stanton Studios in Los Angeles, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your next dinner party. Our icebreaker this week came from Merge Records mogul Mac McCann of the band Super Chunk. Super Chunk. And later we'll be speaking with our guest of honor, pop savant Chuck Klosterman. But first, small talk. So, Brendan, this week the Obama administration said they weren't going to prosecute medical marijuana growers. And, um... And? And I would love some Pringles. Oh, man. <laughs> what? Well, luckily we have a staff of professionals here at Marketplace, and they told us some of the stories Rico forgot. Scott Jigau, Marketplace blogger and host of the After the Bell podcast. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, Wired magazine had a great story that the CIA is sinking millions of dollars into a company that tracks blogs and other social network sites on the web. And that's not anything that I should be afraid of, right? Well, I don't know. I think they're really trying to target foreign social networks to keep tabs on terrorists, but... So the lesson is, if you're a terrorist, don't Twitter about it. Stacey Vanek-Smith, Senior Reporter Marketplace, what's your story? Bank of America and Citigroup are going to start charging people for being good. (laughs) It was only a matter of time. I know. So Bank of America is going to start charging people who pay off their credit card balances every month. What? I know. And Citigroup is going to start charging people who don't spend enough on their credit cards. And next comes the help an old lady across the street fee and and the daily breathing toll. (laughs) And of course, the banks won't be subject to these fees because they're not in danger of paying back the government on time. Rada Bead, senior producer of the Marketplace Morning Report, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I love this. Guy in Massachusetts goes to a Honda dealer, wants to test drive a new Honda. Salesman gets in with him. A thousand miles later, they catch the guy in Wisconsin. He took it on a 1,000-mile test drive. <laughs> he just wanted to be sure that the brakes were really reliable. You got a lot of things to check out. You got to get the seat just right. You got the radio. Exactly. And if this guy goes back to buy the car, he'll get a discount because there's 1,000 miles on the thing. <laughs> and now... Time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a nerdy adolescent, which we hit with a water balloon full of booze. I can't decide if that's mean or awesome of us. Were you a nerdy adolescent? Guess. (laughs) First, the history. This week back in 1973, an already odd kidnapping got odder. We're pretty sure the guests at your dinner party won't know much about the story. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. Money can't buy happiness. Case in point, John Paul Getty III. His grandfather, Getty Sr., was one of the richest oil men on earth. So when John Paul was kidnapped in Italy at age 16, he probably didn't think it'd be long before Grandpa paid the $17 million ransom. Except two problems. 
First, Getty Sr. was a notorious skinflint, the kind of guy who had a payphone installed in his own mansion for guests who needed to make a call. And second, John Paul had a rep as a rebellious hippie. So the Gettys suspected he'd faked his own kidnapping to con his grandfather. He hadn't. And after three months, John Paul's captors proved it. On October 21st, 1973, they cut the kid's ear off, stuffed it in an envelope, and sent it to an Italian newspaper with the warning that more bits would follow if they didn't get paid. The good news? The kidnappers also reduced the ransom to around three million bucks. The bad news? Italian postal workers were on strike, so the package took three weeks to arrive. By the time the Gettys took John Paul's kidnapping seriously, he'd been chained up in Italian caves for four months. Anyway, the ear did the trick. Getty Sr. finally agreed to help pay the ransom, and John Paul was released. Of course, John Paul's dad had to promise to pay Grandpa back with 4% interest. So that's the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Eric Alperin. He's the owner and bar manager of The Varnish in Los Angeles, John Paul Getty's old stomping grounds, where he left a big fortune and a big art collection. So Eric, you heard the history lesson. What cocktail does that inspire you to make? One of the first cocktails that popped to mind was the Americano. It's actually served to the American soldiers uh, during World War II when they were in Italy. Really? Is it, yeah. is it coffee and hot water? No, no, not at all. It's Campari and sweet vermouth. Okay. It is um, the color red, <laughs> which in the story when you have uh, a bloody uh, ear, Junior's ear has been cut off. <laughs> yeah. It kind of it kind of made an immediate parallel. And his father went into the red to uh, spring Junior. Yes, exactly. There you go. We're making more parallels here. Now I have a good friend of mine, Michael Madrusen. He did a twist on on the Americano and called it the Young American. Ah, a la David Bowie. Totally. It's an aperitif-style drink. It requires equal parts sweet vermouth and uh, Campari in a Collins glass with some really nice block ice, if you can, topped off with uh, with club soda. Uh, you would make the Young American the same way, except before you built it all in the glass, you would just rinse out the glass with about uh, two bar spoons of absinthe. Right, and the absinthe harkens back to someone else who lost their ear, Vincent Van Gogh. So there's another, yet another parallel for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, Brendan, what would you do if you had a billion dollars? Oh, man, I would go to a dollar store and buy one thing for everyone in China. (laughs) I think that's generous. (laughs) The dollar store would be happy. Which is all that matters. People, uh, you can contact us for nothing. The email is dinnerparty at americanpublicmedia.org. Our guest of honor this week is Chuck Klosterman. He has written for basically every worthwhile magazine in the country. He's a novelist, and in his new book, Eating the Dinosaur, he returns to the format that made his name. It's a collection of very funny and very astute cultural essays. Chuck, welcome. Thanks for having me. If I had to describe your writing, I would say you're you're often trying to answer these unanswerable questions, often about popular culture, like why do fans of a band always hate its most recent album? What cultural phenomenon have you had the hardest time figuring out? Anytime I'm dealing with something based on having 
a completely organic experience with the internet because I am just old enough to have never have had that. Being brought up as a child with the internet, you mean? Yeah, you know, like these people who sort of, their relationship to the internet is similar to um, my relationship to television. The first people I ever knew who had email, there were two guys I knew in college, and I thought they were absolutely idiots because it seemed like they spent the whole time sending the Batman logo back and forth to each other, and it took like seven hours to do it, you know? Now when I talk to people who, when I talk to college kids, this is totally the case, none of them are into anything mm. as much as they're into social networking. So a lot of times when I try to deduce things that are happening in cyberspace or on the internet, I'm overlooking the fact that to me, it's still seems like a new thing. Do you ever worry obsolescence is sort of built into your job? Because you live and die by pop culture, but it changes so fast you eventually get left behind. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that that's going to happen to me. I'm sorry. But here is the thing. Then there's that whole audience of people who are like, you know when music was good? The 70s. <laughs> So I suppose that I will also be well positioned to become one of those like craven nostalgic acts, you know, who like just complains <laughs> about things, you know. I will be able to sort of have a second career just being bitter. Well, we can look forward to that. Um, we have two standard questions. What question should we not ask you at a dinner party? What are you sick of being asked? What are you listening to now? When I go to colleges, they ask that all the time. The expectation is that if you write about music, I'm constantly listening to whatever the newest music in the world is. And that's never the case with me. I, For a while, in fact, I was not going to listen to any album that hadn't been out for at least a year. Because what was happening is when I worked at Spin particularly, we were investing ourselves like in these bands. Like I remember this all-female hip-hop band from Brooklyn, Northern State. And by the time the record itself came out, we were like, I guess this is terrible. What were we thinking? <laughs> right. So now I thought, if I always wait a year... It'll sift itself out. It will sift itself out. And the only thing I'll really miss is the year of music preceding my death. <laughs> That's all right. We, I always read about this accelerated culture stuff. It is bizarre. I mean, we do need to have news fast, right? When a bridge collapses in Minneapolis, we need to know immediately. I do not know why we need to know that, like, the new Weezer video has leaked. Because that gives a reason for magazines to come out every week and, frankly, for my podcast to come out every two weeks. <laughs> um, here's our <laughs> second question. Tell us something we don't know. Do you know that you can kill somebody with a tiger's whisker? Come on. This was actually done in olden times. It was a way to assassinate people. What olden people. times? If you Well, whenever tigers were more present, I guess. Uh, the whisker of a tiger is extremely uh, sharp. And if you clip just a little bit, put it in someone's drink... Uh, it will pierce your intestinal tract, and you will die. I also know that in the first chapter of this book, you acknowledge that you occasionally do lie to interviewers, so I will be fact-checking this. That tiger thing is not a lie. I will stake my career on it. So, Brendan, I actually did run Chuck's facts through our top-secret lie detector. Codename Google. Exactly, and it seems he's sort of right. Some Asian peoples apparently did once believe that tiger whiskers could kill but I uh, cannot confirm it actually works. So basically, until we conduct our own private test assassination, mm-hmm. um, Chuck is free to appear on Marketplace next week. That's right. He'll be uh, on Marketplace talking to Kai Rizdahl about professional writing in the internet age. Look out, Kai. Ah! 
So we've met our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Now, Rico, in the past, I've used this segment to rail on some things I don't like. This is true. <laughs> like cupcakes, the obvious one. Yes. Grilled cheese, the Lakers. Mm-hmm. But this week, I ended up doing this segment about something you dislike. That's right. Halloween, <laughs> which I consider to be kind of like the new New Year's. This is the holiday that you have to have a great time that night or you're like a big fat loser. Oh, and by the way, you also have to purchase a bunch of crap that the universe doesn't really need. It's like, so basically, it's like a razor in the apple of your life. That is exactly it. <laughs> the problem is, though, that there are a ho- lot of slutty pirates, though. <laughs> bonus. <laughs> but the problem is that Halloween is kind of about food because of the candy. So I figure if we have to cover it, Let's talk about what's supposed to be the worst candy that there is, which is salt licorice. Now, the only place I could find it was in San Francisco, and it just so happens Brendan was going there. All right, here I am in front of Miat Confectionaire to do a piece on the worst candy in the entire world. Thanks, Rico, for not being able to make it. Looking in the window, there's all these precious little candies, and there are cupcakes. Hi, I'm Tess. Tess Wilson. And you're the manager here at Miette. I am. Okay, full disclosure, um, I didn't choose this assignment. I'm on the record as thinking food related to childhood nostalgia is corrosive for democracy. So I think I'm anti-candy. You're anti-candy? I think so. I mean, I think why I love it here and why I was a customer here for so long is that we try to find things that are just a little bit of magic. Like, if they cost 25 cents, if they cost $25, they're like... Are like, oh my god, there's wonder in the world. There's chocolate that looks like a shoe for no reason, except that it looks like a shoe and it's beautiful and somebody thought of that and made that. Okay, so behind you is, here's the reason Rika put me up to this, is you have a pretty extensive uh, licorice collection. Let's talk a little bit about it. Um, most of what we carry is from Holland and they do have the tradition of salty ammonia intense licorice. There's no actual salt involved. The salt flavor is all from ammonium chloride. What's up with ammonia? Why do you know why it's That is one thing I have not learned yet. It's like it sounds like it's like this leftover ingredient from the Second World War that they started putting, <laughs> but it, obviously it predates that. That's part of the mystery of it. So what's your saltiest licorice? Zwart, which is a beautiful word and pretty much sums up how they taste. <laughs> a hard candy that's quite salty and then when you get to the center, it's even saltier. How come you're not having one? I've not been able to finish one. I've tried it. It's all right right now. It's just salty and mild. But you're saying the interior is where... Oh, my God. Wait a second. I just... I just, like, bit into an engine. This is unbelievable. Wow. It tastes like wood. It's pretty extreme. Wow. And so do you move a lot of the zwarts? We do. I'm almost out. I need to order more. I think actually I need to order a napkin because I just want to like spit up in front of all your clients. What gets something disqualified from being candy? (laughs) Brendan, thank you for some excellent immersive reporting. And as per our deal, you get to pick my next main course. Well, you're welcome. And I uh, look forward to hearing your upcoming report on knuckle sandwiches. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. You can keep up with us between episodes on Facebook. Just look for us there. Special thanks to Caitlin Carroll and Christiania Clark for helping us set the table. And thanks to John Raby and Queen of Kim. You can hear us on their show off-ramp. That's at kpcc.org. We leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. 
The band is called Swimmers. They're from the city of Winners, Philadelphia, and the song is called People Are Soft. Bon appétit. Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And man, I'm feeling really hungry. Oh, really? Um, I've got something for you. Ah, dude! Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want that toasted?